author of Wicked Fox and Vicious Spirits. And I'm Clarabelle A. Ortega, author of Ghost Squad and Witchlings, and this is Write or Die. Hola. Hello. Okay. Uh, I feel like a million years has passed since we last recorded an episode because so much life stuff has happened. <laughs> really? I don't feel like... I feel like we've been recording so many. Oh, but that's why it's weird for me because I literally talked to you a week ago and I still feel like so much life stuff has happened. Oh, guess what? I want to celebrate this moment. I finished my short story revisions a week early. Aren't you so proud of me? That is so good. <laughs> I I like finished revising them and then I just sat there staring at my manuscript being like, I don't understand. Like, what else am I supposed to do? Like, what else do I need to revise? And I like reread it and I was like, I don't feel like anything needs to be tweaked right now before I send it to my editors. What is happening? What is this? Feeling? Maybe you're getting the hang of it. Do you know I like what to think that? Do you know what's really funny about short stories? I when I work really hard on one, I feel like it's OK. But when I just write that shit like. In a night. <laughs> It slaps. It comes out so good. I don't know. I think maybe I overthink things when it comes to short stories. So being able to like hand your shit in early and be like, I'm done. That's an excellent win because I almost never can do that ever. I never have. And historically never has happened. I I feel like I... I used to, when I first started writing, have those moments where I would go into like a weird fugue state and I would just write, 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 write for like, you know, 10 days in a row. And then I would have like the shittiest manuscript known to man, but I'd still have a full manuscript. And then it was like a treasure hunt almost, which I love, actually. I don't know if I've said this before in the podcast, but revision is actually my favorite part of writing, not drafting. Because I love, because I'm a pantser, I love going into like my manuscript and being like, well, what did I actually do? (laughs) And like discovering the gems and pulling them out and like rearranging things like it's a puzzle and like kind of going into like full, a beautiful mind mode or like actually more accurate is like the conspiracy board and it's always sunny. I go into that mode and I'm like (laughs) shifting it around. Like I have like one of those like, high-tech things in minority report i'm making so many analogies right now yeah you're all over the place i'm all over the place i'm sorry but like that's my favorite part because i'm discovering what actually what i actually wrote (laughs) yeah i that's that's a mood that's a mood i mean that's the same thing that usually happens with me too and i'm like well let's see what i just did for the last six months because i go into like a weird like blackout state when I'm writing and I just like Mm -hmm. do stuff and I've been trying to get better about doing some sort of outlining but it usually doesn't happen until I get like super stuck and then I outline like the next Mm -hmm. couple chapters um (laughs) I I for whatever my next project is going to be like from scratch I am going to try to outline it and see how it goes um but I actually have a lot of fun doing that too like going back and being able to read what I wrote and surprise myself because it's always better than what I imagined it was which is really nice Mm -hmm. (laughs) it wasn't always (laughs) like that (laughs) 
<laughs> Sometimes I'd go back and be like, what the hell? <laughs> but as it turns out, practice does make perfect. And I'm getting better. <laughs> wow, what a concept. Um, no, no, it is nice. I'm, I'm happy for both of us. I, I do like one day want to do like a retrospective of myself and like go back and kind of sample, not on write or die or anything but like for myself like go back and sample like old writings I did like 10 years ago and seven years ago and five years and three years ago and just like kind of see if I can track my progress because mm. I think that would be really fun I think you don't see it in the moment mm. when it's happening but when you have it all laid out in front of you you're like wait I think I did kind of get better and then you get like feel feel good about yourself which we yeah. need <laughs> yeah and it's like there have been there have been like authors that I will see them uh, sort of improve, like if I'm following their career, but there's always like a spark of like, oh, this person has something about their writing that makes them stand out somehow to me, you know, and I, yeah. I feel like that about my own writing, even when it wasn't good <laughs> or perfect, but there was something about the storytelling that still felt compelling to me. And I think that's what made me keep going like that little mm. nugget of there could be more to this if I keep yeah. trying um and I think sometimes when we talk about like writing and progress and getting better we talk about it in terms of like the accolades or like the rewards quote-unquote that you get from them like an agent and like mm -hmm. a book deal but like yeah. those improvements when it comes to craft are so nice and like I feel like we don't talk about them at length as much like I was really bad at characterization before or I was, sh was shitty at dialogue like giving examples of things like those are mm. all achievements as well I just feel like you know obviously we're not on Twitter like happy to announce that I no longer suck at <laughs> you know and get like 2,000 uh, retweets on that like we don't but it's still yeah. a huge achievement as a writer for you to start in one place and then be able to like flourish and bloom and mm -hmm. finding those like little pockets of like goodness in the beginning when you're not really sure what the hell you're doing is important too because I feel like we're told we're supposed to hate our writing so often mm -hmm. it's become part of the like hive mind of writers but I full sale reject that like there's so many times where people be like if you think your writing is good then you're not a good writer and I'm like excuse me shut the fuck up I'm pretty sure <laughs> that people who are like I'm pretty sure Stephen King doesn't think his writing completely sucks. Like, I'm pretty yeah. sure people who are, like, super successful know that they have something about them. And there's nothing wrong with celebrating that. I think yeah. I think maybe the advice gets skewed to, like, don't be overly cocky. There's always things to learn. Even though I also don't yeah. like don't be overly cocky because, like, fuck the system. But, like, there's always more. <laughs> there's always more to learn in any field that you are. So you should never, you should never think you know it all, basically. Like you should be always like mm -hmm. a willing student to whatever craft you are um, practicing because that's how you continue to get better. Um, but I think that, I, I think your retrospective idea is like a really good one. Um, 
because it is important. It's important to do that as we go along too, to say like, okay, like this was like really bad. Like if I look back at my very first like full YA manuscript, objectively it was full of problems, but it also had a lot of really good things about it. Like there were a lot of beautiful things about it. Some really nice lines that I remember still to this day. So I think that, um, trying to improve on the things that you're not so good at is really important but also pick picking up on all of the the things that show like hey I actually could be good at this because look at this one thing that I did also like look at this one line how beautiful it is imagine if I could Mm -hmm. fill a book with lines like this and that's like what I where my like focus and energy goes when I'm being healthy about my writing career yeah for sure for sure definitely And, like, there's definitely, yeah, there are things that I really like about my writing and I've always liked, like you were saying. Like, I I really enjoy writing romance scenes. And (laughs) I think, objectively, I've been fairly decent at it. um, And and I do believe I've only gotten better at it because I just do it so much. And at first, I kind of was, like, kind of down on myself. I think sometimes we we think, oh, if I'm good at it, then it can't be that important because I'm good at it. I don't know if you ever get that that horrible feeling. Um, But I definitely did in the past where I was like, okay, well, like, romance is, like, the least serious thing. Like, character arcs and, and plot and, you know world building and themes that's so much more important but Mm. i'm like no like i can i can sit here and be like i really like these romance scenes and they add to the story and they make me happy fuck that that's why rules are bullshit because (laughs) sometimes i just like i would love nothing more than to read like a book that takes place in like a convenience store that sells (laughs) magical items like i don't need a plot I just yeah. I just want to see what happens every day. Like maybe there's a little bit of like romance, like maybe but if 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 there's not, I just want to like I love like slice of life things with a twist. Um mm-hmm. so there's other readers like that too. Like I feel like publishing is so afraid to like try new things that we always focus on like it has to be this and it has to be that and i understand like story structure and blah 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 but also like some things are more important to other people than others like just because you know we've been conditioned to like write a certain way doesn't mean that it Mm -hmm. always has to be like that i wish it didn't always have to be like that it's boring (laughs) well (laughs) it's all also you know like publishing is such an old institution and it's very very tied to its traditions Mm. and i feel like it's really hard to get an institution like that out of its like i don't want to call it a rut but like out of its habits right Mm. and we it's why whenever a book comes along that kind of like breaks the mold, we become weirdly obsessed with it. Like we got really obsessed with Twilight, not just because it was like making us feel all of the romantic feelings, but because it was like, oh yeah, a young adult novel that's about a girl who falls in love with a vampire, but it's not the vampire you're used to. Like it's someone more ambitious big like ambivalent like they don't have to be like pure like evil personified Mm. or whatever and that was something that like hadn't really existed in the YA space (coughs) at that level (laughs) 
Oh, bless I, you. I tried to mute and my hand just like went <laughs> to outer space instead. No, that's fine. But like, that's why we're still obsessed with about Twilight to this day, don't you think? Yeah, I, I agree. And and that's the thing that frustrates me about publishing, that instead of trying to find a new story that is going to make us all feel something different, we try to find the next Twilight. And like the reason why we found Twilight was because it was a new never before done thing in that way right or I don't want to say never before done but just like done in a way that was like unique for the time right um and that just happened to be like the right place the right time for an audience who was like really looking for it and I was having dinner with an agent and they were telling me I wish that publishing would just focus on the story more instead of the trends um, yes. Because at the time, her agency, it's a big, pretty big agency. This is a friend of mine. It wasn't like one of my agents um, had bought a vampire story. And this was like mm-hmm. years ago. So like not like now where it's like trickling back into like sort of publishing. Like people are mm-hmm. talking about it. There's like more vampire story, short stories, whatever. Um, this was like before any of that and very super post Twilight. <laughs> so... <clears throat> I was like, yeah, I su- I really agree with that. Like, I wish that um, that we could do that. And she she gave the example also of Lainey Taylor, who you know when Daughter Smoke and Bone came out, the the angel and demon theme was like done. Oh yeah, it was pretty much done. But her book is so <laughs> incredible. Um, it's so good. Imagine if they had said no oh my god imagine an industry where they had kept daughter smoke and bone out of the industry that's the thing just because they believed that angels were dead but that's (gasps) the thing that that has already we don't know it but there are other daughters of smoke and bones out there in people's computers and like trunked and like literal printed out that we'll never see because publishing said this trend is dead and we're missing out on Ugh. brilliance of story because of that. Oh my gosh. If you're some if you're listening right now and you were told that like three or five years ago, consider untrunking that book because Clarabelle and I probably want it. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like let's give these stories a chance. Like I do think the industry is trying to change. There's so many forward thinking agents and mm. editors who are trying to open up the doors wider. But if we allow ourselves to self-reject before we even send it to them, then that's a problem too, you know? Like, I I don't want... I'm yeah. so sad now thinking that we missed out on, like, a bunch of Daughter of Smoke and Bones. Of Imagine course. if we missed out on a bunch of BIPOC Daughter of Smoke and yeah, Bones. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. That's exactly what it is. And when you think of, like, I have only Kat to thank for introducing me to that series because she super loves it. (laughs) And she was like, you have to read it, you have to read it. And I finally read it. And I was like, holy crap. And I just adore Lainey's writing. We have to get her on the podcast because I want Kat to be, like, freaking out. I'm going to DM her right now. Um, You'll be (laughs) me screaming the whole episode. (laughs) Um, But... It's just such a good series. Um, I got it actually for my niece for Christmas, and I'm like nice. patiently waiting for her to start. <laughs> I, I I'm I'm being very patient because she just read all of the uh, all of Shadow and Bone and mm. the Six of Crows duology. So, which I also peer pressured her into doing, and she's obsessed. <laughs> Wylan is her favorite. She always loves like the obscure characters. Anyway, she loves Wylan, <laughs> and um. 
I just really, it, it breaks my heart to think about that, to think about the stories, the beautiful stories that we've lost to the machine of publishing and the arbitrary rules and like the trends and like all that shit. And in that way, I feel like self-publishing can be really good. But at the same time, mm-hmm. you have to have certain skills or a lot of money to do self-publishing well because yeah. it's going to get lost in the fray anyway if I don't know about it, if I if people don't read it, know the book exists, you know. So it's just, sure. it's just a shame. It's just a shame. It makes me really sad. Um, and it's one of the oh, no. it's one of my least favorite things about publishing. Like there are rules that are rules for no reason. Like we were talking about the other day. Like why does it matter that people want to have prologues? And oh my gosh! Yeah. I, and I think that it's because a certain trend happens in like an agent's inbox usually, right? Um, or with like certain. I think that's where it starts. And I think sometimes it does trickle down to like readers, but I think people in the industry itself get sick of seeing certain things because the majority of the things they're seeing are from writers who aren't ready to have their work published, right? People Uh who are still learning and who are still, um, who are still sort of like getting, like learning the ropes. And so they get sick of seeing a character waking up in the morning as the first scene because it's a very common thing that new writers do. Your instinct goes there, right? As like Mm -hmm. a human being. But if you have a very experienced writer, if you have somebody who sort of has a talent um, already or who has really studied their craft and does it in a new and original way, we're losing out on those things because of Mm -hmm. these rules of like a hard no on them. And like, it's it's evidence in the fact that once you are published and once you have a books out you're allowed to do those things again you're allowed to have a prologue you're allowed to do these things that we tell new writers they can't do because it's not the it's not the thing itself it's the execution of it and since people on the uh, on the other side of the books are seeing it executed by like new writers or people who haven't gotten the hang of things yet they're like don't do this at all and yeah. they make it they make it a hard and fast rule, which, you know, it sucks. Well, that's limiting, too. I feel OK. So I think the issue here, though, is and because I completely agree with you 100 percent on all of that. Like, I think that the problem is, is that newer writers, whether they intend to or not, often uses tropes and trends as crutches mm-hmm. right they're like right. i need something to make this story interesting and vampires are interesting so i will include a vampire instead right. of thinking deeper into it to be like what makes a vampire an interesting character like what create what how does me playing with the themes of vampirism like they have to feed on human blood they have to kill to survive they're immortal what are what can i do with those themes they just do vampire sexy vampire throw it in um so in a lot of ways when we are inexperienced with our writing and we're just trying to like make our books flashy to get attention to get into the industry we're doing ourselves a disservice right we need to take a beat we need to study our craft because no matter because once you understand your own craft and your own voice whatever trope or trend you decide to tackle will be uniquely from your perspective but until you do that you're just cookie cuttering you know what you think will sell and that's the problem right but on the other side of the table I think that 
publishing is wrong to adopt a mindset of like, oh, I'm tired of this. So let's shut this down across the board because that works in other industries where it's like, okay, if a lot of people are doing this and it's messing up our productivity, we got to make a hard and fast rule. Just stop everyone from doing it. We can't trust them to do it well. Right. So let's say that this isn't allowed, but we're in a creative industry, right? Right. So when you make blanket statements and blanket rules, you are shutting out the possibility of that one genius thing from coming in. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, in a creative field, we are looking for the one in a million. Like that's our job. Okay. Like that's what we signed up for by entering a field of creativity. So yes, it's like, okay, in a store, if like people don't know how to like mop the floor, right? So like you need to make rules for how to do that. That's fine. Like you don't want creative mopping. That's fine. Mm. But when it comes to being like making art, you want people to experiment. And when you shut down their ability to spread their wings with rules, then you're shutting down their ability to experiment with their art and to create new things that could wow you in the end. Yeah. And everyone loses when that happens. Absolutely. So true. So super excited for today's guest. Uh, We have Heidi Heilig on the show. Um, Heidi grew up in Hawaii where she rode horses and raised peacocks. And then she moved to New York City and grew up even more as one tends to do. Her favorite (laughs) thing outside of riding is travel. And she has haggled to rugs in Morocco, hiked the trails of the Ko'olau Valley and huddled in a tent in Africa while lions roared in the dark. That sounds really scary. She holds an MFA (laughs) from New York University in musical theater writing all of all things and she's written books and lyrics for shows including the time travelers convention under construction and the whole she lives in brooklyn with her husband and sons they do not own a cat hi heidi how hi, are heidi. you hi i'm so good now that i'm talking to you it's, it's been so long it's been so it's long been i feel like we, saw, we used to see each other like barely often on the like convention circuit and because i was mm-hmm. always at work i would see you like you know pretty consistently around at, at events years ago and then everything yeah, when there were events yeah <laughs> <laughs> what are events <laughs> i know i remember catching the subway home like and seeing you folks there like one or the other of you often like after a book of what one- books of wonder thing or something and we would always run into each other it's just been obviously way too long it's so yeah. long i i miss those things um i do have a i do have a question that came up from your bio why do you have to specify you don't own a cat is there a story behind this i there is so my favorite headshot has a picture of me with a cat on my shoulder i love that picture and and it's still it's it's a wonderful cat but it is not mine and it (laughs) belonged to the photographer and the cat just got into the studio part of of the of his house and jumped on my shoulders and so we took that picture and I loved it um but sadly I am allergic to cats so Aww. it's like my I know it's like my one connection to pretend to owning a kitty <laughs> oh my gosh that makes total sense and as soon as you mentioned the headshot I was like oh I know I know exactly what, what she's gonna say now yeah because it's such yeah a and it was funny because it was the one that was not planned it was like the only part of the whole photo shoot that I was like actually smiling that I didn't look like I was pasted on smiling I kind of love that I love this yeah candidate. who can't smile with a cat on their shoulder I love that <laughs> that that picture brings me so much joy I really love um 
author photos that have pets in them. Like, mm-hmm. um, I think V. Schwab has one with her dog. It's not like her mm. official one, but she has one that I've seen her post that, like, there's a dog next to her. And I'm like, use that one always. <laughs> no, that's good. That's good. Um, so, Heidi, we would love to hear kind of the quick version of, of how you fell in love with writing how you got your agent, how you got your debut book deal. I know that the series coming out now is not your debut, but let's go back in time a little bit and hear about your beginnings. Time travel. I love that. (laughs) Um, So way back six years ago, seven years ago, it it was 2014. Um, (laughs) However long ago that is now. Um, I was just, I was doing musical theater um, and I I was writing um, shows with a friend of mine. I can't write music, sadly, so it makes it hard to write musical theater um, unless you have a collaborator, which I did at the time. And I I guess I still do. Um, But I was writing shows and he went away for um a tour of the producers like across america and i was (laughs) i was alone i was like oh no i don't have anything to write so i better just maybe i'll write a book um i had always loved reading ya and yeah i mean some of my favorite books were ya fantasy and so i was like maybe i should do this myself like it can't be too hard can it (laughs) and it was um but it but it was fun too and so i basically i took a few months to write my first book. And it was, it sounds like a short amount of time because I, it takes me like a year or more now to write a book, but it was the only thing I was doing at the time. I was obsessed. I like, as probably a lot of people know, I am bipolar and I was on this manic tear and I was just writing, writing, writing nonstop. So I came up with this book in a few months and finally I was like, well, that's done. I'll get it up. I don't know. I'll slap it on Wattpad or something and be done with it. And my mom actually is the one who talks some sense into me. She was like, you should try to get an agent. I was like, what's that? I don't know. (laughs) I had no idea. I was like so clueless about publishing. Getting an agent when you're an actor is completely different. And like, and absolutely like, I mean, for me, it was absolutely impossible. And like, it it was a whole different world. But um, so I learned how to query then. I went to Query Shark at like, I know that site's still active, but not probably not as active anymore. But like back then it was what everyone was like recommending. Um, learned how to write a query letter and then started querying. And I was like, okay, I'm going to give myself six months to try to get an agent. I had no, I had no concept of like what reality was with publishing at the time. I just really didn't know anything. I thought like six months was good enough and like long enough to try because it wasn't really, like I said, I didn't know didn't know hardly anything and it wasn't like my it hadn't been like my lifelong dream to be published it was just kind of this little I don't know peccadillo at the time Uh, I thought I was going to go back to theater Um, so I was like okay I'll do this querying thing I'll send out one one query letter a week Um, and of course by then after the mania I was depressed and I was like one query letter a week is all I can do so I made myself do it and it took like I got I sent out like the query letter to the agent I have now, Molly Kerhan, um, it was one of the first ones I sent out. And 17 or 18 weeks later, I sent like 17 or 18 query letters. So it took like three or four months for her to respond. And one of the letters I sent out like more recently had gotten a response. And she only, I think she only responded because I nudged her. I was like, oh, okay, I'm going to tell everyone who has a full that I have a, that I have interest from someone else. And so she read it 
really quick after I mentioned that I had, you know, I know everyone's busy, mm. right? So she mm-hmm. read it after, after I was like, okay, I have someone else interested. And she asked for a call as well. So at the end of that, like three or four month period, I ended up with having like two calls with two different agents and they were both really, they both sounded really awesome. And the agent that I decided against has gone on to do like amazing things. And like, I'm so um, like, I don't feel like it was like a, I, I didn't decide against her because of anything like bad, but I mm. loved Molly's. Um, she had ideas for rewrites mm-hmm. and I, I had, I really missed the, um, the critique and like the audience feedback of theater, which is something like, it's very hard to get when you're, um, an author, you don't get that immediate, like, boo, I hate it. Thing. Like, <laughs> the audiences won't do to you. Like, at least they're honest or like the, the applause either, which I also miss. Um, so I love that she had critique for me that was like immediate and that I could understand like how it would fix the piece right away. Um, and so I decided to go with her and, and it's been a happy agent editor or agent, uh, author relationship ever since. I love that. And I, I I love Molly so much. Um, Mm -hmm. she was just so great. Uh, so once you did sign with your agent, what was your submission uh, process like? So she had some brief ideas for rewrites. Um, I remember we, I think we signed in December. And so I did one round of rewrites that was, um, that was based on the suggestion she had given me um, at the time we signed. And then we went out on submission. I think her big plan was to go to Bologna Book Fair um, in April uh, and like, and do like do bring it there. Um, and so she sent out a couple, I don't, I don't know how many like agent secrets I can reveal. I remember <laughs> the thing. So the, so the book is about the girl from everywhere is my first book. And it's about a time traveling pirate ship and, and, uh, and going using ancient maps to go back in time. And so she said that she was working on her pitch and she was like, okay, I'm going to, I know what I'm going to say to people. It's something like, you know, it's time travel, but not what you think. And so that's what I always think of now, whenever I think of the books, (laughs) it's time travel, but not what you think. I imagined her saying that to everyone at Bologna book fair, Um, (laughs) but but she, so she sent it out like uh, to a few people just before, and then she shopped it around there as well. Um, and then we had um, some pretty quick responses. I think there were a few different folks who were interested in it. And I ended up going with Martha Mihalik at um, Green Willow. And uh, again, like a love story. I've stayed with her ever since. And she is, I still, we don't have any current, after this book that's coming out is is done, we don't have any like current signed contracts, but I'm definitely showing her my next things and I'm, I'm eager to work with her again yeah oh I love that I love when you find an editor that you connect with and you want and you already know you want to do future projects with that's amazing yeah it's lucky too I feel like it's not I feel like I hear I mean I hear a lot of good stories too but I also hear some horror stories and I'm just really lucky that she's um that she's like a constant presence in my life for sure. Yeah, I, I agree with that, too. I mean, it's interesting because I feel like there's like levels of mystery in publishing. It's like agents, we put them on a pedestal, but we still can get decent information about them, even though they're a little bit of a mystery. But then editors are like have an extra curtain of mm-hmm. <laughs> like in front of them. I agree. <laughs> so and, and they're so 
there's such there's a specific amount of them especially if we have our hearts set on like a certain imprint or a certain publisher so like you go with who you have to go with and if the relationship isn't everything you wished for you're like well at least I'm with so-and-so publisher right um I hear a lot of stories that that end like that right and then there's sometimes there are people who leave or change houses or Mm -hmm. anything like that and that's also a whole different um ball of yarn whatever that thing is sorry (laughs) I've done some other short projects with Realm as well and working with different editors, but for the full length novels that are, that take so much back and forth and so much work, I've only ever been with Martha and I'm very happy there. That's amazing. And it's like you're saying, it's like something that doesn't happen as often as it should in publishing. So once you find a good editor, you grab hold of them. So I'm really happy for you. And I I feel like to find an editor who really gets your writing style is important. And I adore your specific writing style, Heidi, because I feel like it's very unique while still like touching on some lovely, like high concept things that as a reader, I always uh, gravitate towards. Um, Thank you. Yeah. So um, I know you mentioned the girl from everywhere, your first novel, which involves time travel, which can I just say like such respect for anyone who tackles time travel. It is oh such a God, confusing yes. thing to me. It, it, it is to me too. <laughs> <laughs> like linear time is confusing to me, not alone, let alone. <laughs> like, <laughs> I wanted to um, bring up that, that, one of the most embarrassing things that has ever happened to me, but funniest thing. It's only okay. Here, I will give the caveat. It was only embarrassing because I still felt so new in the community. I think if I did it now, I'd be like, ah, oh. oh, fuck it. But <laughs> you do it on purpose. Yeah. Now. Um, but <laughs> oh my goodness, and you and you were so sweet about it. I swear, I would have spiraled so hard if it wasn't you, Heidi. But yeah, so the second book in Heidi's The Girl from Everywhere duology is called (laughs) Ship Beyond Time. Ship Ship. with a P, like a a boat. And I really wanted to congratulate Heidi on her book birthday because I had loved The Girl from Everywhere so much. But it was morning and I typed up my tweet and I sent it. And the behind the scenes of that is I went to go take a shower before going to work. So that tweet was up for like a while (laughs) while I got ready from work. I come back. I have a bajillion notifications (laughs) (laughs) because I not sure if it was my fingers or my autocorrect, but I had said congratulations on the shit beyond time, Heidi. Oh, oh gosh! Well, that should that could have been the. Re- I mean, we were still stuck on what the title should be for a long time. And if you'd been on the team, we just I think we I would yeah. I think my life would be very different today. I, like you could have become this like satire author who kind of just like tore apart <laughs> like modern pop culture and stuff. And you're like really yes blunt and to the point. And you're like this shit beyond like this shit beyond time and stuff. <laughs> Um, but I wasn't sure if you were going to talk about that, but I was secretly praying that you would 
that you would because that was one of my favorite cat moments it was just so funny <laughs> it was it's wonderful and it's also it's so funny too because it it's always funny to hear about but I I honestly maybe it's my bad memory but like I you always remember it first cat I never even <laughs> it doesn't even occur to, it doesn't even occur to me to tease you about it because it's like <laughs> I've good said so many more embarrassing awful like every like whenever I go and announce like I talk about the book I I always think about like especially how to like make sure that I don't sound because I've said it so many times like fast uh -huh. and had people do a double take and so I I it anyway it's a natural <laughs> it's a natural mistake I mean thank you for saying that the t and the p are very far away from each other on the keyboard so I have no idea how that happened um I'm glad that you don't remember it as like intensely as I as do vividly, <laughs> as vividly as vividly I can see I can yeah no I, don't honestly worry. you know at the time like everyone who replied to it wasn't mean or anything they were all like oh my god this is amazing <laughs> I cannot believe that this is yeah, happening. everyone was just laughing but laughing yeah. with me I think <laughs> I think it was a little of both but not in a bad way like not in a like like in, in a cat that was so funny type yeah of way, well I think you know? It helped that Heidi immediately replied and was like, this is amazing. <laughs> and it was. It was. I, I feel like if that's the only screenshot that anyone ha ever has of you going around, that that's really, you can, you know, you can go off to Twitter heaven. Yeah. Like, you know, knowing you're, you're okay. I've, I've made many a typo before. I've And I used to have this policy where I was like, if I'm going to tweet, then it's something I can stand behind. I don't, I don't delete tweets, but I deleted that tweet so fast. Fast. I deleted it so oh, fast. Wow. That's that's such an intense policy to have. I don't I don't have it anymore. Um, mostly because I've gotten lots of racist trolls mm. um, in recent years, so I have to delete tweets so that you know you know white supremacists can't find me anymore. Um, but yeah, I, I used to think that I used to be an idealist. I guess I used to think like Twitter is just a place for great conversation, and if I say something, I need to stand behind it. Um, I was also like naive because people's opinions are allowed to change. <laughs> like we're human. We're allowed to change our opinions. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I get you. I, I myself, I think I've tweeted my address um, because <gasps> I wanted to invite everyone to a party. I, this bit again, this is mania, right? So it's uh -huh. like ev the world yeah. is my friend. Let's all come mm -hmm. over. And like, I tweeted my address and I left it up there for a few hours and then someone was like you should take that down I was like okay mm -hmm. and I took it down but by then enough friends had seen it and they had my address or like new friends friends yeah. that became friends after coming to one of the parties um but it you know I I totally get it but like I think with with anxiety or um white supremacists or like mental illness I don't think it's or any of these things changing opinions I think that it's silly to <laughs> not silly to have a policy like that but I think it's hard to yeah um, keep a policy like yeah, yeah no for sure and I, it's so much more fun to just tweet like dumb stuff like <laughs> the one time Kat and I were doing truth or dare for her book launch we had a pajama party on IG live and oh. one of the dares was I had to tweet I just farted <laughs> no context, no context. <laughs> it's still up there I never deleted it I'm that's gonna be there it's part of my record um, I just thought it was so funny because people were like, okay. And some people were like, period, sis, me too. <laughs> like, everybody, like, people Wait, so you just still like, can't give context. 
I can't if I get up and quote tweet and be like, by the way, I think some people who watch the live did, but I don't Uh particularly Uh mind that there's no context because I think it's really funny. Yeah, who does it hurt, right? Like, it's just weird. And like, at worst, people just scratch their heads about it being like, okay, I guess, Clarabelle. Yeah, I love messing with people on Twitter. That is my favorite thing. Like, I... Well, most people know this, but I always tell people that I draft in Wingdings 3 in oh, the font. Oh, no. And, like, <laughs> legitimately people, like, there, somebody on BuzzFeed was, like, really? And I was like, if they make a list about this, I am going to <laughs> die happy because this will have been the biggest troll of my life. <laughs> um, that's what I, I'm convinced that that is what the only way to safely use Twitter <laughs> to just, like, just be your like silly self and because mm-hmm. the moment you you could say the most logical thing in the world and there will be a, someone to well actually you mm-hmm. um so i rather just have fun with it yeah totally agree <laughs> um <laughs> so heidi we are this when this episode goes up it's going to be the day before your newest book comes out which yes! will be the ending of your four muse of fire trilogy can you kind of give us a little summary of the trilogy and maybe a nice little like tease about what on this unworthy scaffold is about sure it is the last of the Shadow Players trilogy, which uh, follows Jetta, a bipolar Shadow Player who also has the forbidden magic to bind the souls of the dead to her shadow puppets. Um, so there has been rebellion, there has been war, there's an evil necromancer, there's um, you know love interests and dancing girls and all sorts of I all sorts of the fun things that I've wanted in an Asian fantasy ever since I hate to say this but ever since I saw Miss Saigon when I was a kid um there here comes the theater stuff again but um when I I you know I always wanted to see um all these fun things but in a way that wasn't like orientalist and and Mm -hmm. terrible and and so uh so I wrote my own the conclusion to the book, uh, the conclusion to the trilogy shows new continents and new gods. Um, it was kind of a, 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 there were three gods and so there are three books and I managed to sort of focus on each of them. It was a lot of fun to do that world building. Um, the rebels get to take, you know, have to take back the throne in the city and Jeddah has to grapple with um, the her nemesis, Litropas, the evil necromancer that she's been struggling with the entire uh trilogy and there's all this stuff about colonialism and the novel is told from um jetta's first person uh sort of point of view and then there's also all this fun ephemera like um, play scripts and myths and letters and telegrams and some sheet music that uh, I wrote with my collaborator, who I did still. I got back after his t- after his tour of the producers. Um, <laughs> I got I got him back, and I got him working on some um, songs for the book. And uh, so those are all. That's all in there. It's everything but the kitchen sink, um, and it's a lot of fun. It's, it was a real. Uh, it was a real journey doing an, a trilogy, <laughs> and I don't know that I will do a trilogy again. But I'm so so proud of of this book of of the work that has taken place over the last four years. It's so exciting. It feels like 
So I, I think publishing makes time feel different. Um, mm-hmm. So I remember when your first book came out and it just feels like so, so, so long ago. I don't know if it feels like that for you, but for me it does. Um, and I just, does. I, I just remember like um, you being really one of the voices that sort of welcomed me into publishing and was like so kind and that I really looked up to as like seeing other like authors and authors of color who were like doing the damn thing and like made me feel (laughs) like it was possible for me so I just want to give you your flowers and tell you thank you for that because it means a lot when uh when authors sort of like open the door to newer people who are coming into the industry and make you feel Mm -hmm. welcome because it can be really scary um and i can legitimately say it would have been way way harder for me to be published or do anything had it not been for authors like you that means so much to me um can i tell you a secret yes like i when i came into publishing i like knew like i i I knew nothing about publishing in the publishing world. So folks that had already been there, like you, I mean, I know that like just the way time worked out, it's just like, I might have been, you know, published before you, but it doesn't mean that I didn't look up to you when I met Uh, you. I absolutely look, I absolutely looked up to both of you. You seem, you both seem so knowledgeable and I know a little bit more now. So I know that you don't know everything, but Mm. (laughs) you, you both seem so, um, I don't know, aware of like the publishing world. And, and there's also something I think to be said that like, I mean, I'm 41 this year. And I think that there's a lot to be said for younger voices and like the knowledge that you have just being closer to um, like your youth and like, and the, the sort of the newer generation. I think that there's so much knowledge that you guys have just by living in the world as you lived in it. And and so much stuff that you didn't have to unlearn, like us olds did. Um, <laughs> but, but I've always looked up to you folks, and I, um, and so it means so much to hear that Aww. the opposite yes. is also true. Well, here's our secret: we're not as young as people assume that. We yeah, are. we're not. I'm I'm 37. <laughs> I'm 37, so I'm not oh. m- much, uh, much younger than you are, Heidi. Uh, I just drink a lot of water. Oh, I guess. Yeah, yeah it's my it's my genes. And <laughs> Korean skincare, thanks to Kat, who... Yeah, I, gave that, I gave the Korean skincare to you. Then. Mm-hmm. But I, I will say that, like, um, I I do think that, like, Claire Bell and I probably, like, embrace, like, the younger pop culture stuff still, um, which makes us seem like we're younger, but it's just because, like, we are just obsessed with that world. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't um, think that's part but, of it. But it's good market research, right? I mean, it is. And it helps that we're genuinely interested in it. Like, I would be yeah. interested in that stuff even if I wasn't writing young adult, you know? So I, I think sure. that that's important, too. Um, but, yeah, I, I agree 100% with what Clarabelle was saying. And I think that what I've always really appreciated about you, Heidi, is that you put your actions where your words are. Um, you've created some amazing community spaces for authors oh. and spaces that not only allow us to, like, feel safe, but encourage, like, active growth, which I think that's a really important thing to keep an eye on. A lot of stuff is being aired out in our community in the past year, probably because we're all stir crazy. Um, <laughs> but I'm always grateful for the few spaces where 
these the hard conversations are encouraged and i think heidi you've created a few places like that actively um that have really helped and i really appreciate that well i thank you so much but i i will say that a community is nothing without its members and <laughs> we're lucky to have you in, in in this and i mean you you have done the same cat so you know don't don't just talk me up take your own credit there. <laughs> this is um, a love fest i know right we're just being too nice <laughs> well you know we it, credit's always nice to it's always good to give credit where credit's due like clarabelle was saying originally mm-hmm. and i think that we like to think of word or die as a place where we get to like say like hey you know what here's you're full star. you deserve it you're yeah. appreciated <laughs> yay i and i always i like here the thing is is like we talk a lot about the writing world being a community um but I feel like sometimes people don't are like, yeah, 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 community, whatever, whatever. You have to use those buzzwords. But I'm like, no, we really are. Like, we really, like, get in each other's, like, lives. We're like, hey, you know, how's, <laughs> how's your house renovation, Heidi? Or, like, whatever, right? Like, <laughs> No, it's um, true. It's true. And I think, I think that that's – I think it also helps to it, – it's crazy because when you're a young writer, when you're young, before you become an author, um, and even I think some people who – are still who are authors and have been for a while they maybe forget this but like we're all human beings like I I remember thinking of authors as like authors you know they I could never have this job because I'm not you know there's something else and I'm just a person um but then I became one I was like oh (laughs) we're all just messes in disguise and we got lucky but then but then it, it helps to remember that like we are people and like we can help each other and like if there's a problem like someone can reach out or like if there's something that's confusing or something you need to talk through like you have your friends and they're human beings and you just you can rely on them mm-hmm. for sure definitely um okay let me try to turn this back to about your books though <laughs> oh. <laughs> boring yes so, okay not boring not no, boring we love your so books bad. Be like, not boring I agree. It's no, I love this stuff. <laughs> you, um, you did mention that um, it was an experience writing a trilogy, and I had already kind of had it bookmarked. I wanted to ask you about the difference between writing a trilogy and a duology. I'm always fascinated about like how it differs the plotting, the like the brainstorming, like how you lay out the story between a duology versus a trilogy. Like how did that differ for you um, as a writer? <laughs> you seem, you seem to really be acting as though I, I knew what I was doing, um, <laughs> but I, <laughs> but, and that it's very a kind assumption to make. Um, but I, you know, when I wrote my first book, I didn't even know it would be a duology. I had I actually had an idea for a trilogy, but I was also like, this kind of is a standalone. Mm-hmm. Um, so when my editor was, we, um, she bought the book in a three book deal. Uh, so it could have been, you know, three books in a series. It could have been a duology. It could have been a standalone. And we decided to do a, like a follow-up book, a duology with the first book. Um, and that, in writing that, I it was weird because I had the trilogy idea, but I didn't have a duology idea. So I had to sort of come up with a way of like mirroring um, certain elements. I I wanted it to be like really time bendy. And if you were reading both books and comparing them to each other, you could see like where the time stuff kind of mirrored and broke itself, broke, broke, it broke up um, the plot. 
And so I wanted, so it was kind of, it was interesting to, to do that when you, when I was thinking about like time as like a concept, I don't know if that like makes sense or if that's too like woo woo, but no, I like that. But, uh, but then when the, when I did the trilogy, I was like, okay, I'm going to come up with an outline. I'm going to do, I'm going to propose three books because I want to do a trilogy. Like I, you know, the duology was like great, but like, it'd be great to challenge myself with a trilogy and like, here's the outline and this is going to be amazing. And like, I can see, I like planned it all out, which I had never done before. Um, and then, and I was like, great. Okay. So we, I wrote the first draft of the book and I turned it in and I, I, I used to say this a lot because, um, it was a very dark time because like a week after I turned in the first draft, um, you know, who won the election mm, Yeah, and everything that I thought that the book was going to be about and the whole trilogy was going to be about was not, um, really applicable anymore. I had wanted to write a story about like with, with, um, sort of criticizing like the like the use of drone weaponry and like Mm -hmm. killing people from afar like um I had thought that it was going to be the time for like the left to finally grapple with the warmongering that we've been sort of complicit in with um most of our lefty past presidents and Mm I and uh but it wasn't it was the time for (laughs) it was the time to like go absolutely insane and just try to throw your body on the on the machine basically and so um my entire outline and my entire first draft of the book had to be changed. Um, and it didn't get easier from there. Like I had to, I just had to keep writing like through, I don't know, it like the po- politics really affected me. I think um, if you like read my work and if you know me as a person, like I have always been like very political and politically minded. And so um, writing a, a whole new idea that I hadn't planned for through uh, the worst administration in, in recent memory, um, was like, was very difficult. And, um, but I'm sure like, I say that knowing that I'm lucky, like I lived, like I did not lose everything. Like I, it's hard to even complain in a way, but it was not good for the creative process. Um, I think that if, (laughs) I think that if I had been able to, um, write the original trilogy, um, I would have had a different, like, I mean, it would have been a very different experience. Um, and I can't say like, I'm happy I had this experience anyway, because it did lead to so much pain and suffering and death because of the presidency. But um, I am proud of the work that I did. And I, but I think it would have been just hugely different um, the way it was originally envisioned. Yeah, that's so, that's actually really fascinating. And I think it's true that what's going on in our lives as, authors seeps into whatever projects we're working on at the time I think it would be it would be a disservice to our creative process to try to keep those completely separate our personal lives and our Mm -hmm. creative lives just because of like the nature of our jobs but it's interesting like how it did completely shift your plans for an entire trilogy um, because the world kind of set itself on fire um, yeah. <laughs> like willfully too. It wasn't even by accident. It was like right on purpose by a lot of people. But um, so, do so to kind of like piggyback off of what you were just talking about. So like, did you find that like you do try to create a lot of like 
current event allegories in your writing then because i i've always really loved the fact that sci-fi and fantasy does allow us to tackle some really sensitive subjects that the average reader might like shut down if it was like presented to them straightforward but if we're saying like oh and then there's magic they're like oh tell me more about oppression you know <laughs> like um so do yeah. you do you tend to use that as a tool or do you think you like to do that I do. I like to, um, I'm like a super pedantic, like rude person in part, like when I talk to people directly, I'm like, I'm just like, you know, I, I scare people off a lot, like, um, by just like yelling at them if they vote wrong or if they say the wrong, like not, I mean, I mean, there's, there's grace to be given, but like, I just remember there were, there was a period of time where I had met my husband's college friends and then like they, one by one, they kept not, they were like, Brett, I cannot talk to your wife. Like, I can't talk to that, her anymore because she's so, you know, brazen about her opinions. And it's like, just because I voted for whatever. And it's like, just because. But anyway, that's another story. Um, <laughs> I mean, they were wrong. I was right. <laughs> but I do find that when, when you put that in a book, um, you can do it in ways that are um, that come across as more subtle and I mm -hmm. think that reach a wide, wider audience. I think that it's also, um, there are like little things you can do. Like what, one of the things that I'm, I still giggle about is that like, I always, th this actually was the first series where I wrote a villain who was a, a person of color. I think every single other, and most of the sub villains in the, in the series are still white. Um, like every other villain I've ever written has been white mm -hmm. and the evil ghost spirits are, they give people blue eyes instead of like the normal, like, you know, how people normally associate darkness or blackness or any of the darker colors with like evil it, in my book, it's blue and blue eyes are like the mark of evil. Um, so, so it was kind of like one of these little things that I just felt like mm -hmm. I could do that would not, um, it would just give like a tiny middle finger to sort of historic um metaphors in in writing i appreciate that it's so it's so insidious how those things leak into like our subconscious too and like fuck with our like standards of beauty and like all of those things especially as children like i remember mm -hmm. i um i talked about how it wasn't until my 30s that i started really wearing my hair curly constantly more than i wore it straight oh. and how uh, reading things with where where girls had blue eyes and blonde hair and they were always the hero of the story kind of like messed up my perception of what beautiful could be because it was the only example that I ever got right. and I had uh, someone DM me like like really super innocently like can like do you think that like can you tell me like why that matters to kids right like do you think kids Ugh. like notice you know and she was like genuinely asking and I was like well to tell you the truth a kid might not realize that it's being that it's affecting them in the moment when I was a kid it did affect me but I couldn't tell you why but now that I'm an adult right. I see the fruits of that of only reading about those kinds of things and it really did take me so long to undo those things and I think people don't realize like how important those small details in all of the things that we consume are. Mm -hmm. So I support you. Thank you. Brown, brown <laughs> eye supremacy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I, 
I, I've been thinking about it a little bit lately, just kind of Clarabelle and I were talking during the pre-chat about doing like a retrospective, like looking back on like your old writing and, um, but like going back years, um, to really see how you've evolved. And I like to think about that in terms of like how I've experienced publishing discussions too, because I think like we when we first start we're talking about like let's incorporate diversity into books like it was only important to make sure like it wasn't all white right but then we're like oh wait no it has to be authentic like (laughs) you can't just like lean on tropes um and and a conversation that came out of that that i thought found really fascinating is the idea of like just say on the page that they're black or asian or like like you know latin you know don't don't say don't imply it don't be like their coffee colored skin you know stuff like that and and there there it made me think like okay so this is more complicated than i even imagined because like i do really like the idea like i was saying before of using fantasy tropes as being like let's unpack this thing that's obviously an allegory for racism but then there's the other argument of being like just say on the page he's racist just say the word racist because it has power in saying it right so recently i've really been having a lot of like thoughts and i don't even know like what my opinion is on it yet but i do think that it's so much more complicated than we think it is because there is power in just saying like this character is black and they're the hero of their own story um instead of like using an alien race to represent poc you know yeah yeah, I don't know what is up with those people that do the aliens or that in children's like the younger books, like the animals. Like I just don't, mm-hmm. I don't see it. I yeah, yeah. I I think yeah, we're past the point where we're like Mister Purple, and you're like, oh, is he supposed uh, to subtweet. be? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it's fine. She's fine. This he, author is also a famous they, actress. They don't so. need my they don't need my support, and I think that. I think that like it I don't want to I know I'm not trying to take away from anyone's intentions I think that person had great intentions I'm just saying like we are past that point we really are um kids kids are allowed to (laughs) just be like oh that person's Asian and that person's it's not wrong yeah yeah it just pushes that like I don't see color narrative which is like Mm -hmm. uh, it's not that hard to figure out like why that's not okay like no you can see my color and also just not be racist because of it thank you (laughs) yeah yeah I think that the denial of of the denial of the color or the or the of a person's race I think goes directly into the ability of people to ignore racism when it happens Mm -hmm. um because if they don't see color then they can't see people treating other people differently because of color they're just like oh well that person just must be an asshole it's just like coincidence that they're only an asshole to black people like it's like that's not how it works like they see like you do see color you are you are lying yeah Mm -hmm. for sure um goodness we really went into it (laughs) no i I, we started it (laughs) the choices made in wicked fox have had far-reaching effects and myung's friends are about to find out the dire consequences The forces that govern life and death have been upended, and there are supernatural entities lurking in the background that will stop at nothing to right their world. New romance and dangers abound in Vicious Spirits, the companion novel to the crowd-pleasing Wicked Fox. 
This contemporary fantasy duology finds inspiration in Korean mythology, culture, and K-dramas. Wicked Fox has been called a vibrant debut novel that employs Korean genre conventions for an utterly original take on the young adult fantasy by Entertainment Weekly and fresh and fast-paced by School Library Journal Review. Wicked Fox and Vicious Spirits are out now from Penguin Random House wherever books are sold. So when you started uh, in publishing, it was a couple of years ago, but like we were saying before, like time and publishing moves differently. So <laughs> for you, from your perspective, how have you felt the industry has changed or like sort of your relationship with it from when you first got published to now? Oh my gosh. I feel like it's been a wild ride. Um, <laughs> I think, I mean, I always tie the purchase of my first book to, I mean, not necessarily like a one-to-one um, equivalency, but I, Martha bought The Girl From Everywhere and like two or three months later, um, We Need Diverse Books like happened. And like, I know that like both, they weren't like necessarily like, again, related, like one-to-one but like it was a time and place of like publishing where people were pushing for more like people who before like maybe their voices weren't as heard like were pushing for more um people of color and more diversity in publishing and this book was more was I mean I wouldn't call it like it's not like the most diverse book ever written certainly and there were a lot of things that I think I was scared to do with my first book like I didn't want to write a bipolar main character um because I just didn't I just was too, I was worried that everyone would hate her and I was, and it would have been too like much, I think for me to see that happen. So, um, so, but I think that it was the book sort of came out because the publishing world was like looking for more diversity and wondering where all the people of color were. So I really think that the work of, of everyone else and, and the suffering and the, and the, and the, just the sweat of, of people who were pushing for that, became like was is part of the reason I was able to become published um and so I've always tried to push that further and um you know give back to the community and and help other other folks as well that were rising up um just chronologically after me um but I I think you know at a certain point too I realized I had so many followers I don't know like not like not like I have millions of followers but you know I had enough followers that like my subtweety assholery kind of just what like and and like my direct callouts were kind of turning into something that um I think were was less um productive I think mm. than it had been in the past like when I was like not um when I didn't have a lot of followers and I was just like yelling at people like I could yell at people but it wasn't like a threat do you know what I'm saying like, right. I don't want to threaten people I mean I like I emotionally I do but like I don't actually want to threaten people mm. but like I want people to do better but when you have the weight of like a bunch of other people and like a lot of people who are following you that want to do good they just want to do good and they're mm. just like okay well I'll add my voice to this then it becomes a pylon and it's not it's not productive at that point mm-hmm. um yeah and so that's kind of when I I saw a lot of a lot of callouts going wrong in a way, and like, um, no, I mean not going like I. That's a very simplistic way of putting it, but I uh, going out of control. Like, yeah, going out of control or things happening that were just not being not helpful to 
the people that were that should have been learning from it and the mm-hmm. then the change that we were hoping would happen and so that's why I did um I created the Facebook group because I thought that we could you know we could have more conversations that were like that were based on like learning and like learning in a safe environment um and I think that that you know happened that helped for a long time I think it's a little bit less necessary now because there's so many more friendships that have been forged and more knowledge that's out there and more resources. And I, you know, just a a small part of that, but I think that just the massive amount of people learning how to, how to listen to marginalized people and marginalized people feeling, you know, empowered or, or safe or, or, I mean, not safe, but just like they had to speak up anyway. Um, I think all of that changed in such enormous ways in the last six years or seven years. And it's, I don't know. I want to say it's like night and day, but then I look at the numbers and like, I'm like, Oh, we're, we're still like one yeah. or whatever. And it's like, Oh <laughs> fuck. Like maybe I'm just like, I don't know. Maybe it's just the people that I know. Um, but I still feel lucky to have found them. Um, and I, I think that if it's, if it's a, an outspoken, even if small corner of publishing, like there's so many people doing so much work all the time that it's, it's mm-hmm. going to move, you know, the needle It's just going to, we're just going to keep marching forward. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's something to be said with um, the mindset of the people in the industry and the retention of BIPOC in the industry. Um, I think even though we can't necessarily put numbers to the fact that like BIPOC are at least feeling a little safer, like there's no number value to put to that, but it's still a worthwhile result of the conversations that have been going on. And if that's what we've achieved in the past like six years or so then I think it's still something and I don't think we should discount that at all yeah I I I um I think it's also important sort of what you were saying Heidi about us not like things shifting from helping people who need to listen and change to something completely different and I feel like that's happened a lot lately or the mm-hmm. the focus is not for people to do better but to like destroy somebody completely and just <sighs> ostracize them completely from the community and I just feel like that's not helping anyone mm-hmm. um there's people who you know this is their livelihood too um and people who can't are, are make mistakes and want to do better I believe in second chances. I understand not everybody does, but it's just become really vicious lately. And it's like, I feel like it's less safe for marginalized authors um, mm. now, but it's the threat is different. It's like intercommunity now, as, as opposed to like, the white supremacists are still there waiting for when <laughs> something trickles over into like mainstream Twitter. But now it's like within the community itself. And there's a lot of people leaving uh, online spaces that were sort of like a safe space for us before to interact with one another. And I, I, there are a lot of conversations now about how that needs to change. Um, so I hope that there is a push towards that because we can't on the one hand say we're trying to support like BIPOC authors, but then also drive them out of the communities that they're part of. Um, because, we all fuck up. <laughs> it's just a matter of like if you if your fuck up was public or not and like mm-hmm. what you did with it and like how much grace people gave you. Um so I'm really hoping that that it gets better with time, but 
I'm not holding my breath. <laughs> Clarabelle and I just said two opposite things. <laughs> I was like, things are getting better. And Clarabelle was like, it's worse than ever. <laughs> well, I mean, it, I, that, it's how I see it. You know, I think everyone's going to have a, their own perspective. And some things have gotten better. But I think in terms of the online conversations, uh, they haven't because not because like i think we have the capability now of being listened to more than ever before but people are taking advantage of those of that for for the wrong reasons a lot yes, of times that's a good breakdown of it like we have gained in some places but we've also lost some ground in other places for sure well i think that when any group grows or any conversation becomes loud enough, you get bad actors infiltrating. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, they can, like, I mean, we've seen, obviously, not to subtweet or any sub whatever, um, <laughs> sub podcast, uh, not to, but there are people who will pretend to be members of community that they're not to oh, God. try to benefit. I mean, to try to benefit, right? But there's also, there. I mean, for every person, every one person that it's that has been like caught doing that or you know noticed doing that there are probably a few that slip through the cracks and I'm there are several I'm sure that are are just you know just doing bad work or trying to I mean racists seem to have all the time in the world I don't even like <laughs> and if a, if a person wants to stir up shit like one way to do it would be to come into a community and just to try to wreak havoc um, yeah. and destroy things and I think that I think that it's funny. My my latest book is about sort of that. Obviously, like as and the last part of a series, it's about. I mean, the the they've kicked out the colonials and and they're trying to you know take their own country back in a way. But there's a lot of work that has to be done in that. You have to weed out the bad actors. You have to weed out the people that were collaborators or. Um, that were just like trying to take advantage of everyone for their own and take power for themselves. And then you have to build as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't have people actively destroying something as you're trying to build because it's way faster to, you know, break a vase than to make one. Um, yeah. And, and that's interesting too, because I do think like we have so many stories and books that are focused on like winning the war. And then the end of this, the series is like, we won. And then, but what happens after, right? Like the rebuilding, if you look at history, there's so much shit that goes down when you try to rebuild after a war. Um, I mean, look look at America after the Civil War. Like so much crappy shit went down in like the laws that were established or the things that were done during Reconstruction. That, yeah, and it, we are still suffering because it never, it was never seen through. Like, this yeah. is still a problem today because it wasn't ever fixed. Exactly. So I love that you're addressing that in this trilogy. I think it's something, it's it's a theme that we should be focusing on more because we've had the war stories. Like, we've had all of that. I mean, honestly, like, it's why, <laughs> this is a weird tangent. It's why I really like the Mandarin, Mandalorian. The That's why I really like. Sorry, it's the orange. Or the... It's yeah. I did it again, oh, but with my mouth. I'm just gonna. I typoed. It. I typoed with my mouth. Um, it's okay. It's okay. Now I'll tease you though because I'm not swear. Yeah. Um. No, it's why I really like the Mandalorian mm-hmm. because it's about how like this this huge like the galaxy like recovered after you know getting rid of the Empire, which mm-hmm. was like the big baddie, but like. Did that really fix everything? And the answer is obviously no, it didn't. There's still like 
crappy shit that's going around everywhere that people have to deal with. And I think it's really good for us to be exploring those stories um, because I hate the narrative that like as soon as you get rid of like the big baddie, everything will re- will fix itself and you don't have to try. Like that's not true. Right. right. Okay, Heidi. So everyone who's on the podcast tells us their most embarrassing publishing related story or something they wish they'd known before they started. You could do either or you could do both. It is up to you. Okay, I will do an embarrassing one. I, you know, I've said like, I'm an actor, like I used to be on stage, like I'm good at theater, like whatever. So it was my first um, big uh, convention. Like we were doing, I can't, it was, I think it was Tucson, Tucson Festival of Books. And I was, I was going to teach a class with um, April Henry. I think we're going to teach a world building class. And, you know, we got in touch in advance, and, like run through what we we're going to say. And it was like 45 minutes, you know, cl- workshop class and 15 minutes Q&A. Right. So she goes through her, we, we get there and we're doing our thing. And I'm like, I got this. I got this. My editor's there. It's like the first thing first performance I, I, I don't know I think of it as a performance but first time so I she goes through her bit and it's like 20 minutes long and you know which is like perfect time for to to do half and half like a 45 minute presentation and I start talking and I talked so so fast I was so excited and I talked so fast that I basically got through my entire presentation in like seven minutes and I was like and then that's it and then I looked at the clock and I was like, how is there still fucking half an hour left in this damn class? Oh, no. And so she looks at me and she looks at my notes and she just, she saved my ass. She says, let's go to questions. <laughs> and so we had like half an hour of Q&A when we were only supposed to have 15 minutes. But she, I just, I like blasted through the presentation and I just like was looking at the audience and they were just kind of looking at me like they didn't understand anything that I had said, probably because I was talking so fast. Um, but she kind of saved me there, but I think that she, I think, you know, she had had like, I don't know, like 10 books out at the time. And I was like this, you were never going to, I don't, she was very nice about it. It shouldn't have been so embarrassing, but I was embarrassed because I totally got like a weird stage fright problem thing. Yeah. Talking too fast avoiding that is really hard (laughs) if you're nervous. I was so nervous. (laughs) I totally get that. Um, but I personally love when there's a huge Q&A uh, mm-hmm. portion with authors. I think often that's like the most interesting time of uh, of any like panel or chat. Um, some people have great questions. Um, yeah, um, no, the, but there was nothing like no one had. I don't think anyone had prepared questions yet because, you know, when you usually start to think of your questions like at the end. Yeah, yeah I, I don't think anyone was expecting this stuff. <laughs> oh, because it was so, I get it. Yeah, so it was so quick. Uh, yeah, there was a long silence. Do you know what was really smart? Um, I went to the launch for King of Scars by Lee Bardugo, and um, they had like a bowl, like a fishbowl, and you could like write your questions and put them in before the talk because there was like a whole like pre- Oh, that is panel smart. thing. Yeah. And so then um, like her publicist like went through and like picked a couple and um, actually, no, Lee, I think just like pick them sight unseen from the bowl. Now that I think of it. Oh, my gosh. That's so risky. And like read them. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she I guess she could read it and then be like, no. <laughs> <laughs> 
That, but didn't isn't that something that happened in sex ed? Like, didn't people have to like submit questions anonymously and then <gasps> like in high school? Oh, I never got that, but I love that idea. <laughs> oh my god, I just had like bad PTSD flashback to like <laughs> embarrassing questions, like making sure no one saw the way you folded your paper. Like, oh my god. No, we definitely had that in ours for sure. And I and I remember like I wanted to write like a really smart question, and then. I forget what it was, but I do remember the teacher reading it and like kind of looking so confused. And I was like, oh, no, my question's dumb. <laughs> I remember my dumb question. It was, why do people have armpit hair? I still don't understand. <laughs> Heidi, thank you so much for being on the podcast. We had such a great time talking to you. Um, thank you so much for having me. It's been a blast. Can you let our listeners know where they can find you on the Internet? Sure. My website, which is not updated often enough, is www.heidiheilig.com. And um, I'm sometimes on Twitter uh, at Heidi Heilig. Awesome. And we'll link it all in the show notes, too. Um, yes. And everybody, you still have time to pre-order yes. um, uh, Heidi's new book. Get the, tweet, the 20 prerequisite copies <laughs> or else. You already know. Yeah. And <laughs> and we will allow it this time that you can get like five copies of each book from her trilogy and then like five copies. Oh, okay. Of, yeah. That's yeah, allowed. The girl will allow it. Like we can, you can do that um, for this for this one since Heidi has, Heidi has. Oh, my God. I did it again. I can't say words since Heidi has so many amazing books out, but it has to equal 20 total. <laughs> Heidi's like, what's happening? No, it's okay. Don't worry. Swear. I they will. Know. Yes. Do it. Please. Do it, everybody. <laughs> it's our rule. It's our rule for our podcast. Anyway, thank you again, Heidi. We had such a good time talking to you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for having me. And um, I hope, I really hope we can see each other again soon in real life. Oh, we will. We will. Fingers crossed. Thanks for listening to Write or Die. Be sure to check out Wicked Fox by Kat Cho. And Ghost Squad by Clarabel A. Ortega. And while you're at it, make sure to subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a review. See you next time, wordies. And don't forget to spread the word. Write or Die is brought to you in part by Tee Public. Tee Public is home to independent art on stickers, cases, shirts, and more. Check out our Write or Die store at tpublic.com slash store slash Write or Die podcast. Check it out now. 